You are listening to episode 12 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On this very special episode, Todd, Zach, and I review our top 10 films of 2017. Did your favorites make our list? Find out next on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes! We are go for launch. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. My name, once again, is Terry Plucknett. I am once again joined by the completed tripod of Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How's it going, guys? It's going yeah. awesome, Terry. Mid, Mid-January. mid Looking forward to some awesome January and February releases. Oh, you, you know they're coming. You know they're coming. Awesome, I don't know is the right word for it, but... How you doing, Todd? Uh, fine. Just watched the Patriots win, and that wasn't very exciting. That was actually a really boring game. Yes, yes, we're coming to you Saturday night right after uh, watching a couple playoff games today. And uh, both games were fairly boring. Who's but. excited for a Nick Foles-Case Keenum NFC title game? That's going to be pretty awesome. If you saw that coming at the beginning of the year, you know. The battle of the former Rams, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, uh, once again, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you like what you hear, please uh, rate and review us on iTunes so we can be heard by more people. Uh, find us at almostsideways.com so you can uh, get our database of ratings and reviews for all the movies that we've seen. Also, you can find our Almost Sideways sports page where we talk about all things sports. Uh, The newest addition to that is I put up my 2018 Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, You can check that out. Uh, You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter. You can check out Adam on the Almost Sideways YouTube channel. Um, And pretty much all over the internet, you can find us somewhere. Well, today we have a very special podcast for you guys. As this is the first podcast we are recording in 2018, we are going to be giving you our top 10 films of 2017. Uh, They are works in progress. We're not fully happy with them yet, as there are some films we still need to see. But that's what we're going to be uh, giving you guys. So it's kind of a special extended power rankings of of our podcast today. But before we get to that, Uh, We're going to stop and look at uh, the award season a little bit as uh, award season is really ramping up. Over the last couple weeks, we've had the uh, Golden Globes ceremony. We've had the Critics' Choice ceremony. And we've also had the BAFTA award nominations. Uh, And a lot of those help point to what the Oscars are going to look like each year. So, I'm going to start with Zach. After seeing these last, uh, last couple weeks and kind of how the award season has developed, what are your thoughts on, uh, on what's going on? Well, it's, uh, I think it's a three-way race between Lady Bird, Three Billboards, and uh, The Shape of Water. I think it's down to those three films. I think Get Out still has a decent shot, um, certainly for a nomination, but I don't know how serious of a campaign. I was kind of disappointed that Get Out hasn't tallied more award wins over the last few weeks. Um, I guess I will, I'll I'll touch on a a couple things about the Golden Globes ceremony. Um, it was nice seeing, uh, the 46th president of the United States speak, President Winfrey. Um, she gave a pretty stirring address. Nice to see. And, uh, I really hope that Natalie Portman is the presenter of Best Director at the Academy Awards this year. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, that was an awkward moment for sure. It was wonderfully <laughs> awkward. It was it was needed, and I love how Ron Howard just stood there and really didn't know what to say and just kind of laughed it off. But it's okay. He's yeah. made good movies, so we can excuse him. But you know, not a single not a single male winner uh, said anything about the hashtag Me Too movement or really anything. So that that was kind of disappointing to to see. But um, all in all, though, I, I really liked the atmosphere, and it was a I thought a really important ceremony from a kind of cultural standpoint. It was the kind of ceremony people were talking about the next day, not just for the movies that were being presented. So that's always a good thing. Usually, a good yeah, thing. It, did, it did start. It did start conversations. That's for sure. Um, Todd, what are your thoughts? Oh, uh, well, speaking of best director, what I think is interesting about this year is that it doesn't look like there's a shot for any American male white guy to be nominated for best director, which would be pretty much groundbreaking, especially for the Academy, unless Spielberg somehow gets nominated. Because we got a bunch of Europeans, and we got a female, and we got Jordan Peele. So, I think that's kind of interesting, and I still, I, I, my, my dream of having the two, the best actor and best actress both be under 25 is kind of looking a, a little shady right now, but uh, they still have a shot. We'll see what the Screen Actors Guild thinks about that. Yeah, I, I think that yeah. the, one of the takeaways I've taken from the last couple of weeks is I think the acting categories are pretty well set. I think uh, Francis McDormand is going to win. I think Gary Oldman is going to win. I think um, it's looking like Sam Rockwell is, is emerging as the favorite in what everyone thought was going to be Willem Dafoe's year. And um, Allison Janney is really emerging as the favorite in Best Supporting Actress. And it almost feels like all the acting categories are foregone conclusions unless there's a major upset. So um, I think that's kind of interesting going into, before even the nominations come out, we kind of know where all the acting categories are going to go in a lot of ways. I know, Todd, you don't fully agree with that, but I think so. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think Rockwell is necessarily the... The definite frontrunner. I mean, he has won the last two big award things, but what I think will be the problem is if Three Billboards is really popular, then it'll Woody Harrelson will get nominated too, and then I don't think Sam Rockwell wins the award. So, which would be weird because I, I assume Three Billboards will be winning Best Picture if both of them get nominated. But I don't think either of them win Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, and I also think that there's still a lot of pushback to Three Billboards, and maybe we'll talk about that more on the podcast because it might turn up on some of our lists, but. Um, I think it's a, it's a really solid contender, but it's a divisive film, and it might may split up voters in a similar way to La La Land uh, last year. Um, so I don't I wouldn't necessarily say it's a shoe in for McDormand yet, because the Academy may really latch on to Lady Bird, and in that case, you got to think that Saoirse Ronan and, and Laurie Metcalf are still very much in in the debate. Speaking of that, supporting actress is so weak. Like it, it seems like that almost every year, but this year in particular, the fact that Octavia Spencer is actually being considered for that, like basically nothing role in The Shape of Water, and she probably is going to get nominated for it, is absolutely ridiculous. There are like no good supporting actress performances. Yeah, I think by twenty thirty, um, Octavia Spencer will be up there with Meryl Streep in terms of nominations, but sadly, it will only be in best supporting actress categories. Um, yeah, she's she's basically the next Thelma Ritter or something. Yeah, maybe she needs she needs a leading role of her own though. She's a great actress and she's well deserving. But you're right, Todd, and and maybe that's a criticism of The Shape of Water. I, I wish there had been more uh, of her role that was significant. But um, at least it's cool to see her there every year. Yeah, she she's definitely seemed to become one of those. Uh, perennial 
uh, nominees, or at least right in the awards talk every year. Yep. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens over the next couple weeks. I believe by the next time we come to you, we will know who the Oscar nominees are. And we'll be able to tell you about our uh, our Oscar challenge for the year to see if you can pick the uh, pick the winners better than better than we can. So uh, more information will be coming out on that uh, probably in the next podcast, I think, because nominations come out. Is it the twenty third, Todd? I believe that's correct. Yeah. So that'll be uh, so that'll be before our next podcast. So yeah, we'll be uh, talking about our reactions to the nominations uh, next time. But for right now, let's hop into our uh, special edition of Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Like I said before, it is our top 10 of 2017. Um, We uh, put together our lists... Um, and Todd, I will, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of a chance to talk here because I know you have some very, uh, strong thoughts on what kind of year 2017 was at the movies. Yeah. Uh, the year pretty much sucks. Like <laughs> I, I've seen 104 movies and I have given a high rating to 15 of them. And that is way below, not only just below the average for me, but like way below what it ever should be. And I don't know. I only have one movie I gave a four star to, which is upsetting and uh all the big movies all the movies that are nominated at the oscars i think are good but they're nowhere near great and that is i don't know it, it, it's every movie has just disappointed for me and uh but i have a solid group of 10 movies and uh i will try to make them sound as good as i can Zach, what are your thoughts on the year at the movies this year? Yeah, I would have to agree with Todd. I haven't seen as many movies as Todd has, but um, I think part of it is just we're seeing some major splintering of the most artistic and creative people in Hollywood and beyond. Uh, these are people that 10 years ago would have been making you know great movies that we see at theaters, and now they're working for Netflix, or they're working on their own shows, or they're doing their own thing that is not a, a theatrical release. So, um, you know, on, on the one hand, you could say it's a real democratization of the market because there's so many different media that, uh, in which you could watch um, these products. But at the same time, um, movies in theaters, the traditional route is uh, really changing and not for the better um, if you're thinking about the most artistic and creative people. So, uh, but I would, I would say that uh, I, I have a really solid group of 10 films that I, that I did enjoy. A lot of them were pretty not mainstream, but um, I feel satisfied with the list given that we're kind of in dire straits, as Todd pointed out. Yeah, uh, I've I've probably seen I've seen more movies at this point um, from from the last year than I have in a long time. Usually, I'm like around fifteen or so at this time of the year because uh, I just don't get to the movies that much. But I'm I've I've got a decent amount of movies, and um, there are a lot of films that I loved, but nowhere near as many as I as I usually do. So I think it was definitely uh, a little tougher to find. Uh, find the quality i i will say my list is probably going to be much more mainstream than yours um and i know you guys were taking bets on how many of the movies that are on your list that i've even seen and what was the over under on that again three and a half three three and a half yeah out of the 20 
over under three and a half that I've seen. So we'll be keeping a keeping a running tally of that. For I would sure. take the under. I'm gonna throw You're taking that the under. Right now. I think there's gonna be like three, maybe four. It's a perfect over under, really. It is. It's it's a beautiful work of art. Better than most. I think movies. Terry Terry would take the over. Oh, I'd always take the over, especially if you guys are taking the under. I mean, that's that's like begging me to take the over, even though it's probably a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, especially because Zach will just change his uh, movies right at the last minute. That is true. That's always in play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'm going to get started on this. Um, I'm going to start by... Uh, actually, let's all start by listing our honorable mentions. And um, then we're also going to list, like I said, this is a, a kind of a work in progress. We are in mid-January. Some films haven't even been uh, given a wide release in places we can see them yet. Um, honestly, I usually don't release a top ten until like mid-summer because I like to at least see the Best Picture nominees, and we don't even know what those are yet. Um, but So we ha each have an honorable mention list, and we each have a list of movies that we haven't seen yet, that we feel have a shot at getting on our list. So, my still-to-see movies, I've got some pretty glaring uh, films that I still need to catch. Um, biggest of which is Lady Bird. Um, Phantom Thread, I still need to see. The Florida Project, The Post, Call Me By Your Name, The Shape of Water, The Disaster Artist, I, Tanya. That's the main list of ones that, especially around award season that we're hearing a lot, that I have not yet seen. And I have a feeling a lot of those will end up on my list. Um, so what about you guys? What are the ones that you guys still need to see? Well, uh, I'll, I'll list mine. Um, the two biggest ones on my list at this point are Phantom Thread and Call Me By Your Name because they are not in remotely my market, the Kansas City market. And I really feel like those would make a strong uh, contention on my list. I also have not seen Hostels, Loveless, Happy End, uh, first They Killed My Father, A Quiet Passion, Lost City of Z, and Dawson City Frozen Time. Those all seem like really strong Zach films, um, and uh, I look forward to seeing them if and when they ever get released near me. Yeah, and I have not seen yet The Florida Project, Happy End, Last Flag Flying, Phantom Thread, The Can Winner, The Square, Thelma, and Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck. Yeah, but that didn't get very good reviews. But it's Todd Haynes. Oh, that's true. It sounds like we need to it's all see. We all need to see Phantom Thread and do a uh, review of it together. That that would be good. That'd be good. I think it's supposed to get a wider release coming up in the next week or two, I believe. All right, so I'll go ahead and give my honorable mentions and then hop into my number ten. Uh, so my honorable mentions that just missed my list. I have four of them. Um, uh, starting with Wind River. The uh, Jeremy Renner, Elizabeth Olsen uh, film. Uh, Thor Ragnarok was just off my list. Uh, Wonder Woman and Jim and Andy the Great Beyond were my honorable mentions that were just off. But let me hop into my number 10. And number 10 on my list is The Big Sick. In one of the most heartfelt comedies of the year, Kumail Nanjiani establishes himself as a Hollywood star. Uh, most people know him from Silicon Valley. I first discovered him in Franklin and Bash, in which he stole every scene he was in. However, the with the big sick, uh, Nanjiani creates his most relatable performance because simply it is his life. Uh, based on his actual life, the big sick chronicles Kumail's life as a struggling comedian, 
During a show, he meets his future wife, Emily, who helped pen the script. Uh, what seems like a perfect love story soon dissolves into a family drama for Kumail and a health emergency for Emily. At its heart, it is a beautiful love story. But with Kumail telling the story, it is also one of the funniest movies of the year. Uh, the Big Sick, my number 10. Yeah, I, I love The Big Sick. It, it, it doesn't make an appearance on my list. It was probably around my 20s range. Um, but uh, I, I'm disappointed to see it not get more uh, award contention because it has a really good script, some really fine performances, particularly supporting performances by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. And there was some buzz about them this summer when the film came out. Um, I think it's just the byproduct of, of bad timing on the part of the studio, but uh, it's a really uh, funny film with a lot of heart, as you added, Terry, and um, it's a really inclusive film, too. I really love the diversity of the cast and the kind of culture, I don't want to say culture clash, but it's very much a film about uh, perception and biases and the roles that they play in our everyday society, and it's not a downer. It's actually a pretty upbeat and funny movie, so uh, real kudos to Camille Ninjani, who's really talented. And I wouldn't count them out quite yet in the award season. Holly Hunter is nominated at the SAGs. Um, and Big Sick did get a Best Ensemble Cast nomination at the SAGs, too. So it does have some buzz out there and might get some surprise nominations here or there. Producers Guild nomination as well. Oh, there you go. So it, it's got a decent shot at getting a Best Picture nomination, maybe a Supporting Actress, maybe an Original Screenplay. Um, so, yeah, we might be hearing about it in the next couple weeks as well. Uh, Zach, why don't you give uh, your honorable mentions and your number 10? Okay, well, my honorable mentions this year are uh, number 15, Logan, by James Mangold. Number 14 is 1922 by Zach Hilditch, which is a film that we reviewed um, on this show and premiered on Netflix. Really great film that I, uh, Terry and Todd are absolutely wrong on. It's a very fine and outstanding uh, adaptation of a Stephen King short novella. Number 13 is a film I just got back from seeing today, I, Tanya, directed by Craig Gillespie. Um, Margot Robbie is absolutely sensational in this movie, and, you know, if I had an Oscar ballot, um, originally it would have gone to uh, someone else who we might be talking about later on this list, but it now goes purely to Margot Robbie. It's a Charlize Theron-like transformation. Okay, maybe it's not quite as great of a movie as Monster, but it's an astonishing performance. Um, really worth worth checking out. Number 12 is Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, uh, which I think is unfairly getting overlooked at award season. And number 11 is Menashe by Joshua Weinstein, which is about a, a Orthodox Jewish community um, in New York City. Um, really worth checking out in the art house circuit. So those are, those are my honorable mentions, but now I will go into my top 10 list for the year. And at number 10 is the only documentary on my list. We were just talking about how it's been a relatively weak year for documentaries, but there have been a few if, if you really try to search them out. Um, maybe not theatrically, but on Netflix, which is where uh, I saw this documentary. And the documentary is entitled I Am Jane Doe, and it's by a director named Mary Mazio. And it is about... Uh, the sex trafficking um, industry, and uh, it looks at victims of it, um, young girls uh, that get sold off into these rings. And what's really interesting about the documentary is that it begins kind of looking at these um, channels that are really duplicitous and under, uh, you know, not not under a lot of surveillance by police. They just are kind of, you know, they're completely unregulated. They're hor horrible and horrific. But what the film does that's really interesting is it also examines how these um, uh, these channels are propagated in mainstream media 
particularly Backpage.com, which is a Craigslist-type website that uh, these Johns and these pimps basically were able to pimp out um, young girls on. So the film is not only the documentary is not only about sex exploitation um, and sex trafficking, but it's also about internet freedoms and what kind of freedoms should be permitted to, for websites. Um, because the, the the case that the website makes is that uh, these are third party you know, affiliations. And if you start taking that out, if you start saying those are violations of free speech, you know, where does that end? So it's a film about, uh, yeah, it's a documentary about really important issues, um, both social issues, but also issues about technology in the 21st century. So very much worth checking out. And um, just uh, a cameo appearance by the sister of someone that we went to Concordia University with. Serena Little's sister is in the movie. She is uh, the administrative assistant for uh, one of the lawyers that's interviewed. So, actually, that's how I first heard about the film. So, kudos, Serena. Wow. Did not know that. And, unsurprisingly, I have not seen that. <laughs> have you seen it, Todd? Or heard of it? I have, I have not seen it. I have seen the title. I did not know anything about it. See, what's interesting is that, Todd, you said that one of the best documentaries you saw this year was I Am Heath Ledger. So really, we just need documentaries starting with the words I Am. I agree. There's like a whole series of the I Am and then an actor's name things that have come out. I, Heath Ledger is just the one I've watched this year. Uh, anyway, uh, Terry, good choice on The Big Sick. I really like that movie, too. It ranks as my number 35 of the year. Uh my honorable mentions, my or my 15 through 11, I have number 15, Brawl in Cell Block 99, starring Vince Vaughn in a really crazy, brutal prison movie. Uh, Patty Cakes uh, is number 14. The Shape of Water comes in at 13. Uh, the Netflix movie My Happy Family comes in at 12. And number 11, another Netflix movie, Creep 2. A sequel to the Mark Duplass starring movie from a couple of years ago. And uh, my number 10 is a movie I saw recently, and that is Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game. Uh, Aaron Sorkin makes his directorial debut in this film, which is sort of bizarre that he chose this movie to be his first directing job, but it becomes more and more apparent as the movie goes along why he chose this movie. It is just vintage Sorkin. Uh, it's a story about Molly Bloom, who's played by Jessica Chastain in her best performance since Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, she was a former competitive skier who has a career-ending injury and is stuck doing like dead-end jobs until she eventually stumbles upon becoming a personal assistant for a huh. hedge fund manager who heads a high-stakes poker game with Hollywood's elite. And uh, Michael Sarah plays Player X, which is uh, Tobey Maguire, if you know anything about the story. And uh, along with him, she starts her own poker game. She pretty much takes it away from her boss. And uh, she becomes like the kingpin of this like big, underground, dangerous, high-stakes poker game. And uh, the dialogue in the movie is like a million words a minute, like Sorkin always has. And the actors, Idris Elba and Chris O'Dowd especially, are really, really good Sorkin actors. Uh, and, and the movie's a lot of fun. It's like Boiler Room meets Rounders with like, a dash of the social network and middlemen. It's not particularly a groundbreaking movie, but it, in a year of disappointments, it stands as one of the more lingering movies of the year, and definitely worthy of a on this list at this point. Molly's Game, number 10. 
Yeah, whenever I read the plot description for Molly's Game, it sounds like the early scenes in Ocean's Eleven when Brad Pitt is teaching celebrities how to play poker. Is it anything like that? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> what I find funny about Molly's Game is every time I hear someone talk about it, it starts with, why did Aaron Sorkin pick that? For his directorial debut. It's everyone I hear talk about it starts with that sentence. I have not seen it yet, but I plan on seeing it very soon. I think it's bizarre. He never even directed an episode of one of his TV shows. Like, this is the first time he's ever directed anything, other than, like, the one part of a scene in The Social Network that Fincher ended up cutting out anyway. All right, so let's move on. Uh, quick, I'm going to move back because I gave four honorable mentions. You guys gave your top 15, so I'm going to throw out there... Uh, so Wind River was 11, Thor Ragnarok was 12, Wonder Woman 13, Jim and Andy was 14, and number 15 on my list is uh, Darkest Hour, uh, the new film uh, starring Gary Oldman, where he's uh, the favorite to win Best Actor. Uh, he is absolutely outstanding in it as Winston Churchill, and it is um, it is a great a great film if you have a have a chance to see it. Um, so now moving ahead to number nine. Number nine on my list is Get Out. Uh, if The Big Sick was one of the biggest surprises of the year, Get Out is the most surprising film of the year. It has some definite similarities with The Big Sick. Uh, both have first-time screenwriters that are known for their TV work in comedy. Um, Nanjiani in The Big Sick and Jordan Peele for Get Out, who also directed this film. Uh, both films also used comedy and race uh, to tell a fascinating story. While The Big Sick used them to tell a love story... Get Out used them to tell a horror story. It starts by establishing itself as really an updated version of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, Chris, a black man, played by Daniel Kaluuya, uh, and his girlfriend Rose, a white woman, played by Allison Williams, are traveling to visit Rose's parents, uh, where Chris will meet them for the first time. What starts as social commentary quickly morphs into something else as Chris finds himself fighting for his life. Uh, what started as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner ends as something that more resembles a Stephen King story like Misery. Jordan Peele establishes himself as a very talented filmmaker, and he has set his bar so high I can't wait to see where his career goes from here. Number nine, Get Out. Awesome choice. That'll, that will uh, probably be on my list later on. Spoiler alert! Well, I guess I, I, it's okay if I just jump in right here, Terry, because you and I are on the same wavelength, because Get Out also happens to be number nine on my list. Hey, what do you hey! know? We're, we're in agreement about something. Um, yeah, How about I, that? I echo a lot of... How about that, Lem? I echo a lot of what you say. The performances are really good. Um, <laughs> has a you know a film been more shocking than Get Out? I mean, it's a film that came out in february was being released by one half of key and peel and was a Bloomhouse film um and yet it got 99 percent on rotten tomatoes and it was well deserved i i don't know anyone that didn't love this movie um it was an awesome experience seeing it in a theater seeing people viscerally react to not just the blood and gore scenes but just the kind of shock of it. There's a lot of shocking moments in this movie that you don't see coming. Um, it works as a horror film, it works as a comedy, although Jordan Peele says it's more of a documentary than a comedy. Golden Globes should have taken note of that. Um, it also works as social satire. Uh, 
So I'm in complete agreement. You know, The Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture in 1991. It was a February release. Why can't Get Out win Best Picture? I think it's, uh, you know, a, a film that touches on very divisive issues, yet brings audiences together because of its great performances and awesome uh, moments. And uh, wholeheartedly agree that it's, a, it's one of the best movies of the year. There we go. The real question is, is, does that count as two movies Terry's seen of our list, or one? If it's on my list later. I think it's just Ooh. one. I, I think because we're talking cumulative movies. Mm. I don't know. Maybe we need Adam to be the judge on that. Moving to my number nine, I have uh, another Netflix movie, and that is the Meyerowitz Stories New and Selected. It's directed by Noah Bumbach. Um... For everyone involved in this movie, it is career best work. That includes Bombach, and uh, he turned a Netflix original character study into something way more deep and way more interesting than that, than it uh, than it should have been. It's about a, an estranged family who meets up in New York for their father's uh, an event honoring their father's career in art, and the father is played by Dustin Hoffman. And he's terrific, he's belittling and domineering. I'm actually kind of surprised the movie movie hasn't been mentioned in awards talk for Hoffman's performance because it totally fits the bill of being a sporting actor kind of uh, kind of uh, performance that would be mentioned a lot. Um, Emma Thompson plays his wife, Jed Hirsch plays his rival in the industry, Candace Bergen, his ex-wife. It's got a really interesting cast, but it's the people who play the children that really make the movie click and that is uh headlined by adam sandler who plays danny who is recently divorced and lives with his father and we feel his pain in a way that only sandler can express and it is the best work that he has ever done ben stiller also gives his best performance ever as uh, a half-brother matthew who's like a uh, an executive in la and Elizabeth Marvel is also really, really good as Jean, the sister. She uh, she is actually still making an argument for my best supporting actress win. And Bombach movies aren't really for everyone, but this one feels a lot more relatable, and it's undeniably his least pessimistic movie that he's ever made. It, and uh, watching these actors like play off each other is really one of the best experiences I had watching a movie in 2017, and I, it's a shame it hasn't gotten seen by more people it's just a netflix situation so the meyerwitz stories new and selected is my number nine i think the most effuse praise that you could give that movie is the fact that you're putting it on your top 10 list and it's a bombach film that doesn't have greta gerwig or jennifer jason lee in it that's impressive speaks highly of the film yeah i mean i think it's his best movie but yeah i mean if it had greta gerwig then it would be even better obviously obviously I don't know, this is the best cast that he's ever had in a movie. I, I would have thought that this would have been, like, a movie that would have been one that they, like, the Oscars would gravitate toward. I mean, they even nominated him for Squid and the Whale. But Maybe it's the Netflix thing. That's Maybe that's yeah, where the problem is. I mean, it's got to be the Netflix thing. I don't know, I don't actually know where this ever played in the theater. It might not have actually played anywhere. Yeah, I thought it was made directly for Netflix. But. Yeah, it might be part of it, too. All right. Number eight on my list is Baby Driver. Uh, Edgar Wright has carved out for himself one of the more entertaining filmographies in Hollywood today. 
from Shaun of the Dead to Hot Fuzz to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Wright has shown he can combine comedy and action in a unique way few can equal. Uh, Baby Driver might just be his masterpiece. Um, Ansel Elgort, um, getting a Golden Globe nomination for this, uh, plays the title character, uh, Baby, who is a driver for a crime boss played by Kevin Spacey, and none can equal his skills. Uh, driving around characters played by the likes of John Hamm, John Bernthal, Jamie Foxx, uh, Baby always delivers, and no, he isn't slow. Uh, through the action also comes a love story that rivals any action flick. It was possibly the most fun I had at the movies all year. Uh, if you haven't seen it, find it. It's just so much fun. Uh, Baby Driver, my number eight. Yeah, it's fun to sort of recast this movie in like if it was made in the early 90s. You know, Christian Slater definitely would have been Baby. Am I wrong? Yeah, I could see that. I feel like it would have been like John Cusack or something. Yeah, that's not bad either. Oh, that, that I like that better. It it definitely has like an early '90s, like early Tarantino vibe to it, but it has like some distinctly 2010s flashes. You know, I love the the audio component of the movie, how he makes mixtapes of everything, and he's sort of like on the borderline autistic spectrum. But that, in many ways, is like that's uh, it, what makes his character really unique. And so, uh, you know, I, I would agree with you, Terry. A really fun, interesting. Um, action movie that was also in some ways a character study okay well number eight on my list well this is where things start getting interesting on my list because as as we kind of pointed out uh 2017 wasn't maybe the strongest year in the world so i really fall back on great experiences i had at the movies and i love divisive movies i love movies that are open-ended and people have strong opinions about so uh my number eight is a film that had a lot of strong opinions, strong opinions that we even may have discussed in this podcast. It's a film that I originally gave three stars, and going back on it, thinking more about it, I thought more and more how much I liked it. So, what the heck, I probably need to see it a second time, but I'm going to put my number eight film as Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Um, the more I was thinking about it, certainly after recording our podcast, I really thought how difficult of a film it must have been to make at both a story level and at a really practical level about building, constructing a one set for the entire movie and making it really gripping and interesting and narratively coherent, at least somewhat, and then adding in all these special effects of people invading the house. And, you know, there's literally scenes where there are wars and battles uh, with guns and explosions that take place in the house, and then the religious cult at the end of the film. Um, as a spectacle, it's absolutely remarkable. And as I think I mentioned on the podcast, if this movie had been made, like, in 2003, it would have been on a lot of critics' top ten lists and would be getting a lot more Oscar attention. I think it's just maybe the Aronofsky name that doesn't quite have the cachet it once had um, but it's so worth checking out um, I love the the conceit of it I love how open-ended it is we can have a lot of different interpretations about it um, and maybe it's imperfect in places but it harkens back to an era when filmmakers were daring and experimental and they didn't just make movies because of what audiences wanted to see they they dared to frustrate audiences and that's what i loved about mother which was a frustrating film but ultimately a really satisfying experience seeing someone's audacity uh, put on screen in that way so mother at number eight yeah i originally i did not like mother as we talked about on on the podcast but one thing i will say about it is i can't wait to see it again and there's something to that where you feel like you need to you need to see it again to 
to really figure out what's going on and really understand exactly what he was trying to say through it. So for that, I will commend it. It, it definitely had uh, had something there. But on first viewing, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the movie's pretty I mean, crazy. I really liked it, too. I I mean, yeah, we talked about it on the podcast, but I, I was much more on Zach's page than I was with Terry's and that. And maybe part of my putting it on my top ten list is I was prepared to hate Mother. Um, I really didn't like Noah's Ark, and I just kind of, I thought I knew what Mother was going to be, and it completely surprised me. So if you haven't read about a lot about Mother, don't read a lot about it. Just kind of go into it raw, and you'll have a great experience. And see it in a theater if you can. And then after you see it, read everything you can about oh, yeah. it, and it will tell you what in the world you just saw. Internet deep dive, baby. That's all. That's because that's the, the only way you can it. understand anything about that movie. Yeah, don't podcast about it before you do that. That'd be a bad idea. <laughs> that would be a bad. That idea. would that would be a bad idea. Speaking from experience, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> all right, moving along to my number eight. It's the same number eight Terry had. It's Baby Driver. Uh, as Terry said, story of Baby, played by Ansel Elgort. As uh, a young man who uses music to disappear into his mysterious persona as uh, the brilliant getaway driver for Doc, played by Kevin Spacey, of course. It's absolutely the best edited movie of the year. There's not a wasted second. It's just breathless action for majority of it. And um, Edgar Wright is pretty much just making one of his movies. It's just one that was a lot more marketable than the other ones. And uh, Lily James plays his love interest, which makes the adorable side plot that you wouldn't really expect in the movie that really takes it to another level. Ansel Elgort is a future star, which was expressed by the Golden Globes when he got nominated for Best Actor. If the movie has a sequel, I'd be all for it, but Edgar Wright is an original, and I think the movie stands well on its own, and it was the most fun I had at the movies all year, and it might be the last time we see Kevin Spacey until my Casablanca remake. <laughs> oh, you were waiting... <laughs> You were waiting for that one, Todd. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a good All movie. Right. It's a fun experience. It's not a top ten film for me, but it's it's fun. It was really fun summer entertainment. It was. It was. Alright. Moving on. Number seven. Number seven on my list is Dunkirk. Uh, Christopher Nolan takes on World War II and tells a forgotten story. However... It is a story that seemed to be told several times this year, as the story of Dunkirk plays a pivotal role in uh, in Darkest Hour uh, with Gary Oldman. Um, when the Allied forces were practically defeated in mainland Europe, they retreated to Dunkirk Beach, and it awaited a rescue that the Navy couldn't provide, so the civilians did. It is a remarkable story in itself, and when placed in the masterful hands of Christopher Nolan, it became a near masterpiece. The visuals are breathtaking, the score by Hans Zimmer is haunting, and a war film where not much happens leaves you on the edge of your seat the entire time. Um, I, it's another one, like I, like I said about some of the others, I can't wait to see it again. Number seven on my list, Dunkirk. Yeah, well, and you also forgot to mention uh, Their Finest, which is a British film about the Dunkirk invasion, too. Right, yeah. Um, uh, I like Dunkirk. It's not a top ten film for me. I... I uh, it's well shot, it has some great sound and special effects in it, and of course I love the fact that Christopher Nolan is still shooting on film, him and Tarantino are like the only ones left. I think it falls short of greatness because I never really was emotionally invested with the characters, and a lot of times I actually had a hard time understanding what they were saying. 
and sometimes even understanding what was going on, but maybe that was the point in some respects. But I do think in terms of just raw visceral filmmaking, um, it's a really interesting and compelling experience. Yeah, I was not I was not necessarily blown away by the movie. I, I, I appreciate the movie, but I did not love it as much as I wanted to. It's not, not one of Nolan's better achievements, in my opinion, but everyone else seemed to love it. I would say it's it's one where uh, I think the filmmaking really makes it stand out for me. I mean, it's it's a master class in filmmaking um, in, in how Christopher Nolan captures this moment. Um, and the thing that stands out to, for me more than anything else is Hans Zimmer's uh, score. And uh, it sounds like he is going to be one of the favorites heading into the Oscars for Best Original Score and absolutely deserves it. Um, as um, the score adds more to this film, I think, than almost any other film. Well, definitely any other film this year, I would say. So uh, I, for that alone, that moves it up here on my list, just simply for uh, the master class it was in filmmaking. Absolutely. And I thought it had a great opening sequence. In fact, maybe that was part of my disappointment with the film because I thought the opening five minutes were so good that the rest of the movie didn't quite live up to it. All right, well, moving on. Sounds like we're moving on to number seven on my list. And uh, number seven is a film that premiered on Netflix. It is a non-American film, non-English language speaking film, and the film is called My Happy Family. It is a film directed by, oh boy, this pronunciation is going to be fun, Nana Ektimishvili and Simon Grosh. Uh, in fact, if you watch the movie, they're listed as Nana and Simon. So I'm just going to go made by Nana and Simon. Um, and I'm pretty sure you did not say those names right. I'm going to go out <laughs> on a limb and say that is that is not how they're supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> as I'm not Georgian, and I don't mean like the state of Georgia, I mean the country of Georgia, I would assume you're probably right, Terry. Um, the film uh, looks at uh, uh, the life of this uh, mid uh, woman in her early 50s named Manana and she lives in this very cramped apartment with her husband and her grown children and her parents and uh, at the beginning of the movie she is suffocating because of them because they are overwhelming her and overly reliant on her cooking and cleaning and her hospitality and they are pretty horrible people to live with um, as you kind of quickly see so what happens in the film is she actually develops some agency and she decides to get a place of her own. And when she moves out, um, the consequences of that are shown in both in terms of what happens to her family. You know, at first they miss her, and, if, and at first they're really resentful. But then it also becomes a film about uh, what a woman's role is in present-day Georgia. You know, there's all these interventions, especially by the male members of her family, that say, well, you're the mother, you're the matriarch. You can't simply abandon your family. That's not the role that society has paved out for you. So. Um, but what's interesting as the movie goes along, and without spoiling too much, is that in spite of this first initial shock and, and horror that this woman has left her family, people actually start dealing with it. And it actually becomes sort of a constructive, positive force in not just Manana's life, but also her husband's life and her kids' lives and her parents' lives. And um, so it's, it's a look at uh, someone who gains confidence and agency and takes... Um, uh, 
the, takes the reins of this kind of out-of-control house. Um, so it's a really fascinating domestic drama that also touches on political and social currents in Georgia, but it's a universal message, and uh, it's a thoroughly um, enjoyable film. Uh, so that film is My Happy Family by the makers of In Bloom, which was on Todd's list a few years ago. There's a cameo from the main actress in, uh, in Bloom in this film. Um, the, Nana and Simon are filmmakers to watch out for. Yeah, I agree. It was a great movie. It was, uh, I guess, that was my number twelve of the year. It was one of uh, the favorite movies I that I watched uh, on Netflix for sure. And uh, Ia Shugliashvili is uh, like far and away the best actress winner of the year for me. That was a great pronunciation. <laughs> I mean, that seems like that is absolutely dead on. So. Uh, you have experience well, it was with better than yours. We can at least say that. I, I do know that the, the main <laughs> actor in the movie, his name is Mirab Nietzsche. I, I believe that's how you say his name. And he was also in my best film of 2002, Nowhere in Africa, strangely enough. I actually remembered him from that film. Um, but uh, both, both My Happy Family and In Bloom are actually in some ways they're really good companion pieces. And they're both films that deserve a wider audience, particularly in the United States. Agreed. At least this one's on Netflix, so it has a shot at getting an audience i suppose uh absolutely so moving on to my number seven is uh, another netflix movie uh there's a theme there somewhere uh it's a movie that i reviewed on this podcast i think on our first podcast and that is the incredible jessica james and it is directed by jim strauss and he has directed underrated films like grace is gone people places things and the winning season and you might as well add this one to the list as well um it's the best movie that Netflix has ever done. It's a Woody Allen-type comedy set in New York, starring uh, Jessica Williams as Jessica James. She is uh, It's a breakout role for sure, and she plays a playwright who falls in love with Boone, who is played by Chris O'Dowd in his uh, most sarcastic character. And, uh, yeah, neither of them really were looking for love, and uh, the only reason they even went out was because their best friend played by... Noel Wells uh, insisted because they're just coming out of a relationship and immediately they're just blunt and sardonic with each other and their com- their conversations don't really sound like normal conversations in rom-coms and, which is, makes this movie so much more refreshing uh, these characters are like real people and you feel like you actually sort of know them and uh, it's smartly written and uh, Williams and O'Dowd make us care more than we would typically in this ki- this kind of movie and in an era of bad blockbusters and especially bad romantic comedies uh this movie stands as something like enjoyable and different and uh it still makes you feel it as well and uh sadly far too many or far too few amount of people have actually seen it but it's a really good movie and i still recommend it even though it doesn't have a great rating on imdb and it doesn't even have that many ratings at all but the incredible jessica james comes in at my number seven yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw, like, that movie on Netflix. I didn't watch it because I, I think I may have thought that it was, like, Marvel's Jessica Jones. Yeah, it does seem like it would be a superhero <laughs> title. <laughs> Todd, it sounds like one of your favorite actors this year has been Chris O'Dowd. He's been making some appearances on your yeah, list. Yeah, that's the second appearance by him. I, I always liked him. He's he's interesting to watch, but I didn't really picture him being in this kind of movie, but he's, he's really funny. Chris O'Dowd... <laughs> is one of my favorites too because he is the narrator in one of Atticus's favorite shows which is Puffin Rock which is a show about little puffins 
that all interact with all these animals on on this rock called Puffin Rock. So, Chris O'Dowd is great for movies and little kids television. He would be a great voice actor. He would be. He is. Anyways, that was a completely random tangent. That was completely unnecessary. <laughs> Puffin Rock. <laughs> Puffin Rock. I think That's we need what to... I think of when I think of Chris O'Dowd now. I think we need a review of Puffin Rock in a future episode. We we should. I watched enough of it. Goodness gracious. Okay. Uh, <laughs> number six on my list um, is possibly the most seen movie on any list, going from one of the least seen movies to the most seen movie, and that is Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, I absolutely love what they are doing with this new trilogy that they that they have started. And where The Force Awakens essentially remade the original Star Wars, The Last Jedi created something new and original and spectacular. Although there were shades of The Empire Strikes Back, uh, director Ryan Johnson takes some risks that all pay off um, as he creates one of the more intense and fascinating Star Wars films to date. Um, I can't say too much about it because it, I don't want to give any spoilers away. However, again... There are a few people that haven't seen it yet. Um, but it may have set up Episode 9 for failure because this movie was so good. However, this ride was so fun that I don't even care. Um, Star Wars The Last Jedi, number 6 on my list. Yeah, that might be on my list too. It will not be on my list. I saw it a few days ago. It didn't do it for me. That's all I can say. You fell asleep. I'm. I Well, you know... <laughs> The, You've those, never seen the ending? <laughs> you know, that tends to happen sometimes when your movie is needlessly long and two hours and, thir and 32 minutes. Um, I, I'd be curious to see what Adam says about it because I remember mentioning on the podcast a few episodes ago that Adam wasn't a big fan of it either. I don't know. I didn't. I found it that the story beats got kind of redundant after a while. I, um, I don't... A lot of the, the criticism of, of uh, The Last Jedi is that Brian Johnson is too experimental, or he's taking it in directions that people didn't really want to take it. I, I didn't really have a problem with his directions. I just I, I felt like the, the the raw material itself wasn't really that that compelling or interesting. I didn't like the casino sequence. I you know I, I I didn't really care. I wasn't really emotionally invested in anything, and it just got a little redundant by the end, and it was way too long. Few people actually did like the casino scene. Um, it sounds like you did. <laughs> the no, it, it, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, the biggest critiques that I've heard are from the big, the big fanboys that were really upset that their favorite internet theory of what was going to happen didn't happen. And, in fact, none of the fan theories happened because they took it in a completely different direction, which is kind of why I loved it. It's because it was something new and original and different and nothing that could have been predicted. Oh, so you're being a little contrarian then. Sounds yeah, like. taking a taking a page out of your book. Exactly. Isn't it fun to be contrarian? <laughs> Just tell all these people to shut up. It's nice sometimes, you know. <laughs> all right, Zach. Oh, how about your number six? All right, moving on to my number six is uh, Mudbound by D. Reese. Uh, another yet another Netflix film. I guess we're sensing a lot of uh, we're seeing that as a pattern on our lists. Um, but Mudbound was a really strong and compelling film uh, by the director of Pariah, which was on my top 
films list of 2011, and I've been waiting for a while to see what Dee Reese would be coming up with next. And uh, this is a really outstanding adaptation um, of a novel uh, that takes place in 1940s Mississippi, which is not necessarily a time that gets uh, a great deal of attention in film uh, in films, uh, particularly films about race. Um, it's right before the civil rights movement, but it's quite a bit after uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction. So it's a really, first of all, I, I like that it takes place in that kind of underrepresented era. Um, and it tells the story of, uh, well, it begins by telling the story of two white brothers, played by Garrett Hedlund and Jason Clark. And eventually, one of them marries uh, a character played by Carrie Mulligan. And so they develop, they, they are these, uh, they basically own this land uh, in rural Mississippi. And so they develop the relationships with the black sharecroppers essentially on the farm uh, who are played by Rob Morgan, Mary J. Blige, and they have uh, several children, one of whom is played by Jason Mitchell. And so the first half of the film really kind of looks at the, re the, the strained relationship between this white, semi-white trash family that lives in the, in the farm. I mean, they, they are by no means living in a plantation like uh, mansion or anything like that, but also the black uh, workers on the farm too. And the second half of the film really starts delving into the relationship between the Jason Mitchell and uh, Garrett Hedlund characters, both of whom go, in, go into war together and serve together, and it's about their experiences coming back from the war and about the kind of racism that inflicts everyday life in this environment. Um, it's a really touching film. I really liked how, I, I didn't really have any idea where this film was going. I didn't really even know which characters the film was going to follow. It goes in really surprising ways, and it's hard to predict what's happening next. I thought the characters were really interesting and had a lot of um, emotional, uh, emotionally compelling components to them. Um, Mary J. Blige is getting some award consideration. She's outstanding in a role that isn't even really that big in the film, um, or at least not, she doesn't have a lot of dialogue. Um, but the scenes are great, the, the cinematography and the production values are outstanding. Um, I don't love the last five minutes of the film. It would probably rank higher on my list. I, I don't love the ending of it. I'd be curious to see what, what you think of it, Todd, maybe after this podcast. But uh, it's a really strong entry on the list. I hope it gets Oscar consideration, and Mudbound is my number six film of the year. That is a movie that did not quite make my list. I have it ranked as my number 19 of the year. I did really like it as well, and it was my... Uh, preseason pick for uh, best picture, and uh, it might not win, but it still has a good shot of getting nominated. Someday there will be a Netflix film that breaks through with Oscar voters, and Mudbound really did seem like it was the candidate to do it. Um, I'm not really sure why it didn't. It has a great cast, it has really emotional performances, a uh, great soundtrack, um, and a really awesome female uh, woman of color who's direct, who directed it. So uh, it's a mystery to me why it isn't. I, just, I think it, I, it's got somewhat of a plotting second movies. half. I don't really dig second half. I, mean, I think if it was more, if it stuck with more like hard hitting stuff, it probably, it probably would have connected more. I disagree. I thought I thought the second half actually got better than the first half and was a little bit more focused story wise. It was a little less meandering, but you know it's okay. We both like it. That's the important thing. I haven't seen that one yet. I plan on seeing it soon. However, um, something that I think is kind of interesting, what are the chances that, um, once again, kind of like Idris Elba a couple years ago, Mary J. Blige gets snubbed at the Oscar for an Oscar nomination simply because it's a Netflix film? 
Well, it's not, like I said, it's not the world's flashiest performance, and it, she doesn't even get a lot of screen time in it, so it really wouldn't be shocking to see her not nominated. Actually, I think the bigger snub would be Jason Mitchell, but I don't, I don't think he's really in serious, uh, serious consideration anyway. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it's not as flashy a role as, as you might expect. It's a really kind of subdued and subtle role, but she's outstanding in it, and she takes her breath away in every scene she's in. I'm just saying, she's getting nominated everywhere right now, just like Idris Elba was a couple years ago for Beasts of No Nation. Idris Elba even won the SAG, but um, but was left off the, the Academy Award list simply because they don't want to nominate a Netflix film. And so I'm, I'm, I wonder if Mary J. Blige well, might get left in the, the same Baffa, spot. So it's, it looks like it's well on her way to getting snubbed. Idris Elba even, ha- even was British and didn't get that. So, I mean, I think they're just against Netflix completely. Uh, one like like you said, someday they'll break through. But um, the question is, is this that day? It it should be because this is an outstanding film and is completely deserving of a best picture nomination. Okay, Todd, okay, why don't you keep us going? On to my number six, I have a uh, foreign animated film that was nominated at the Oscars <laughs> last year, but didn't get released until this year in the United States, and that is My Life as a Zucchini, which is a directorial debut by Claude Barras. Uh, it's about a young boy named Kugret who uh, is sent to a foster home with other orphans. Uh, he's insecure and he's a loner, but with his newfound friends and the cop that he gravitates toward, he uh, begins to learn a little bit about trust and love, which is something he never had from his family after his mother disappeared. Uh, I think the movie is outstanding it's only a 70 minutes long but it, it takes its place with the devil's backbone and the orphanage and david lean's oliver twist as being the best orphanage movies of all time uh as an as far as animated movies go it explores darker themes than i think any i've ever seen and uh it has more emotional complexity than most any animated movie as well and uh it's a beautiful special movie and it's not one that i'll ever forget my life as a zucchini is number six yeah, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that, Terry, you haven't seen it. I haven't seen I have it I've not seen but, uh, no. it. But it really looks cool, and um, there needs to be more of a place in the Academy Awards for um, animation that isn't P- Disney or Pixar or DreamWorks. Yeah, that'd be not. I mean, they, they, yeah, it's, other than that, Definitely. it's just, like, the Ghibli movies, and that's pretty much the end of it. All right, well, moving on. Uh, number five on my list. Getting into our top fives now. Number five on my list is Split. Uh, the M. Night Shyamalan movie from very early on in the year. Uh, Shyamalan shows he can still make good films as he creates possibly his best character ever and one of his most thrilling rides from start to finish. Uh, James McAvoy in the most forgotten performance, lead performance of the year. Uh, plays a man with 23 different personalities that are constantly fighting for control of his body. Um, as they imprison a group of teenage girls, we see how the struggle plays out. Uh, the idea of a sequel putting this into the Unbreakable universe scares me and might once again run Shyamalan's name through the mud, uh, but Split shows he still has it. It's thrilling from start to finish i loved this movie split is my number five yeah i didn't really like it i give it 
two and a half stars. It was my number 69 of the year, but I did really enjoy James McAvoy's performance. He wasn't my best actor lineup until, like, about a month ago. Like, he's really, really good, but the movie I didn't really like. Yeah, I actually have it listed as a 2016 film for some reason, um, and I have it in the mid thirties of my list last year. Um, I guess I'm somewhere in between both of you. I really liked uh, the setup and uh, I thought it was going in a lot of unexpected directions and James McAvoy is insane in the film. I didn't like where the film ended though and Shyamalan really has some issues um, with, well I, I mean I guess Terry you kind of spoiled it. I, if this film is going to retro, you know, be retrofit into his universe I think that presents some problematic components but if you take it as a standalone film which it should have been um it's pretty strong it has some really good scenes and performances all right moving on to number five on my list is uh, a film by greta gerwig and the film is ladybird a film that's getting a lot of uh, awards attention and deservedly so starring shirsha ronan and laurie metcalf and tracy letts and uh, I guess one of the breakout stars of 2017, Timothy Chalamet, and Lucas Hedges, who was one of the breakout stars last year. Um, it tells the story, it takes place in Sacramento in 2002, and it tells the story of a very precocious, yet also mature and sensitive um, young woman uh, named Lady Bird, who's a senior in high school, and it basically paints the uh, her life uh, over the course of her senior year of high school. and. Uh, we see her relationships with her parents, with her brother, with her friends, uh, with potential love interests. Um, it really kind of recalls the spirit of boyhood in the sense that uh, we don't necessarily see things of great impact ever really occur. There's not those kind of conventional narrative beats that we're, we're, we tend to see. Um, but I love the subtlety of it, and I like that it's sort of an everyday look at uh, what an, an, an honest and unfettered portrait of coming of age in, in America. Um, it's not a Romana Clef for Greta Gerwig, uh, as a lot of people have suspected. I think Shirsha Ronan is outstanding in the film at making it her own character. Um, the relationship between her and Laurie Metcalf really rings true, um, and uh, you, you're on board pretty much right away with this film. You really want to see what happens to Lady Bird as she develops her identity, as she begins to tell the truth about who she is, because over the course of the film she tells a lot of lies. And it's not funny in this sort of sardonic, sarcastic sense. It's actually a lot more heartfelt uh, of a film than you might suspect, than even what, you, what the trailer presents. So um, it's deserving of all the awards buzz. Uh, I hope it wins Best Picture. Um, and uh, it's my number five film of the year, Lady Bird. Yeah, I do like the movie. I wasn't as crazy about it as you. I have it ranked number 39. But, uh, Ouch. I... I I love Greta Gerwig, and uh, on paper it should have been a lot higher on my list, but I don't know. I, I've seen movies like that a lot, and uh, this one is better than average, but it's still, I, I don't think it's that great, but I would have no problem with it winning Bet's Picture, and I think it actually will. I I can see why everyone loves it, but I'm I'm not quite there with it. You know, I, I think the, the fact that it, it opts for drama but not necessarily melodrama i think it's much it's more restrained than like a typical teenage film like edge of 17 from last year um and it doesn't have the melodramatic high drinks of um you know the uh, uh what's what was the film with Annette benning last year where it was like the kid and all the women and Gre greta gerwig was in it 20th century women yeah 20th century women it doesn't really have that kind of melodramatic aspect to it it's much more kind of stream of consciousness and and, and day in the life um free-flowing 
So I don't know, Todd. I think you missed the boat on it. I think it's a, it's a really awesome movie and, and pretty powerful, and it feels a lot different than some of the other teen films that have come out in recent years. Well, I could see a lot of Gerwig in in the role, but or in like I could tell it's like autobiographical and stuff. But I don't know. I I like some of her other stuff that she's done before that, like her work with Joe Swanberg and stuff. Is just stuff that I really fell in love with her on. And I don't know. I I, I guess I expected something different as her first movie, but this uh, I don't know. I still like it. It's it's a mid level mid level three star for me. So will you be disappointed if she wins best director for it, knowing that you are a big Gerwig fan? Are you happy with her career, or do you wish it had been an accolade for one of her other films? I mean, it sounds like you have, you're kind of mixed. I don't know. I mean, I, I I would have no problem with her winning for it. I mean, it's not. I mean, like I said, it's not her best movie, but I I do really like her, and I think it would be cool, like. A movie, movies like that don't win Best Director ever. Yeah. I would also make this prediction right now. I think, Terry, if and when you see it, it will crack your top ten list. I'm going to go out there and just say it. I'm, I'm really excited to see it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, I, I, hope I, I hope I do like it. I also think it's Lucas Hedges' best performance. I think he's way better than that than he was in Manchester by the Sea. I would agree with that. The film's much better than Manchester by the Sea, but that's another story. Anyway, moving on to something... Uh, uh, slightly more popular of a choice for my list, but maybe not, uh, according to Zach. It's Star Wars The Last Jedi, is my number five. Um, I don't know, I still don't understand how the faction of movie fans don't like it, but that's, uh, it's whatever. Uh, Ryan Johnson's take on the Star Wars Unifors, I think, is an absolute, uh, borderline masterpiece, and, uh, it's full of ideas, and it's a movie that's highlighted by expert execution of those ideas and the downplaying of those stupid ridiculous fan theories and it's it's just different than anything else it has nostalgia but it also takes its own direction i keep comparing it to sam mendez's uh skyfall you know it 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 uh, plays like it's gonna be empire strikes back and but then it isn't like it it try it like looks like it's gonna do for empire what force awakens did for new hope and then it isn't and I just I I love that I love that it plays with you and he, and um, Ryan Johnson is doing his own franchise because he he has so many ideas in his head and he he's so good at at that and uh, I think the the actors are great especially Mark Hamill and the uh, bad huh. of the galaxy Laura Dern and the movie is 155 minutes but it feels too short at times like it, it uh, there's so much packed in there and uh, I I love the movie and. Uh, it's now Ryan Johnson's made two of the best sci-fi movies the last five years, and I can't wait till his next one. The Star Wars: Last Jedi is my number five. So, what are what what are we thinking about for Oscar chances for for this film? I mean, is it mostly restrained to the technical awards, or could we maybe see a screenplay nomination? I think it's going to stay in the text. I don't think it has any major major award chances. Well, there's almost no adapted screenplays that have any merit this year, so I guess it's possible, but I really doubt it. It probably is, we're looking at, like, editing, score, and visual effects, and sound, I would imagine. So my number four movie uh, of 2017 is Logan. Uh, over the past two decades, Hugh Jackman's Wolverine has been the epitome of superhero performances. Um, in his last turn... In his iconic role, Hugh Jackman gives his best performance as a grizzled old man looking for a purpose in the later stages of his life. 
Uh, one of those purposes is being caretaker of a senile Professor Xavier, brought to us once again by Patrick Stewart, uh, who's struggling with dementia, which is dangerous for a man connected to every mind in the world. Uh, another purpose develops as a young mutant falls into his life that takes him on one last great adventure. Uh, the film is thrilling, heartbreaking, inspiring, and breathtaking. And it gets even better when you watch Logan Noir, which is the black and white version of the film that comes in the, uh, the Blu-ray. Uh, the Wolverine solo movies had been disappointing up till now. X-Men Origins was okay. The Wolverine was absolutely terrible when they take Wolverine to Japan. Uh, but the, the trilogy definitely went out on top. And so did Hugh Jackman in his most iconic role. He will always be remembered as Wolverine, even if he never uh, dons the claws again. Uh, Logan is my number four. I will say that uh, this was a film that made my honorable mention list at number 15. And I got to agree with you, Terry. It was an awesome film. Uh, apparently, I called it the greatest action movie of all time at one point. Um, I don't think I would say that anymore, but it was a really good film. You know, it reminds me of those stories about, did you ever hear after 9-11 that Michael Jackson, Marlon Brando, and Elizabeth Taylor all got in a car and, like, drove in the middle of Iowa or something to because they thought the world was under attack? This movie, I, I always want a movie to be made about that, but if it never gets made, this movie is the closest we will see. I mean, a grizzled, nasty, broken-down Wolverine, a demented uh, and senile uh, Dr. X, and a, and a mute little girl from Mexico. Mexico. I, it doesn't get better than that. It's like, you know, X-Men meets like Paper Moon. It's an awesome premise. Um, and I just love the understated humor in the film and the facial expressions and reaction shots are hilarious. In fact, I don't even really care about the action scenes. I just love the three characters in the car. It's just awesome. Well, it's such a different superhero movie, too. It doesn't feel like a superhero movie. It feels like a Western in so many yeah, ways. Yeah, we just need we, um, we we need more road trip movies. Like in a sense, it reminds me of Magic Mike XXL, which was also just a road trip movie with funny characters <laughs> and doing funny things. And this movie was a lot like that. So Magic Mike XXL and, and you know uh, Logan, great companion pieces. Todd, you loved it too, right? I think this is going to be in your top three, right? Yeah, no, I didn't really like it. I have it ranked as my number seventy of the year, which is right below Split. So I guess Terry and I agree on that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I would be intrigued to see it in uh, the noir version, but I, I do I do agree with Zach. Like the the stuff in the car, I I love that. I, like the three play, the three characters play off each other really well. But I you know I I, w I was not digging that movie when I watched it. So 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 Zach, you you enjoyed it. You said right? Oh yeah, because very much so. because saying because saying uh, I love it. It's like Paper Moon meets Magic Mike XXL does not really sound. <laughs> Like a glowing recommendation. <laughs> are you kidding? Those are two awesome movies. Absolutely, it's a glowing recommendation. An unlikely mix, but, you know, Magic Mike and Paper Moon with Marvel superheroes. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. Uh, that okay. sounds like a comparison Todd would come up with, not you. <laughs> <laughs> I would add another one in there to make it not sound like a raunchy movie with a 13-year-old girl or something. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Uh, We're at number, number four. four. Okay, number, yeah, number four. Number four is a film I mentioned a couple episodes ago. Uh, 
it's a film I don't believe Terry or Todd have seen. It's a film from France, actually, excuse me, from Belgium, but it's spoken in French, and the film is The Unknown Girl by two of the world's great directors working right now, the Dardenne brothers, Jean-Pierre and Luc. Um, the film tells, uh, that if you've ever seen a Dardenne film, it's, uh, the aesthetic is immediately recognizable. You know, handheld cameras, people on the street, uh, normal kind of everyday people in their jobs, and usually an economy and a society that's sort of broken down by capitalism. Um, and this film is no different. It's about a young uh, doctor played by Adele Haynell. And um, one night outside of her practice, she hears a woman screaming, and she uh, doesn't really do anything about it. The next morning, uh, we learn that this was a woman that ends up being a, a victim of a murder, and this is the titular unknown girl. And so this doctor kind of delves into the mystery of what happened to this girl, and the police aren't really doing anything, so she becomes the investigator, and as she does more and more investigating, she finds out the people she knows are sort of involved in what happened. Um, it's a really great look at uh, this world. It's more of a story-driven film, I think, than the Dardens have really ever done before. And actually, that that aspect of it received some criticism when it premiered at Cannes. But I just love the way that these filmmakers work. I mean, they don't really work off scripts necessarily. They do a lot of improvisation and pre-production work with the actors. And I love the role that this actress, Adele Hanel, is able to bring out. Um, it's really a complex character um, in terms of just her facial reactions and her interactions with her patients and other people in the community. Um, it's a really awesome film. It, it, it's not nearly as good as, as Two Days, One Night, which was my favorite film of, of 2014 and one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, but everything the Dardenne brothers do is pretty phenomenal, and if you're a fan, certainly uh, it's worth checking out. The Unknown Girl, which didn't get a wide release when it came out, but is worth seeking out for sure. Uh, so I did see the movie, and... Uh... Yeah, I don't think it's a good movie at all. I actually have it just ranked three spots above Downsizing. I have it ranked number 74 of the year. It is Whoa. way too plot-driven for the Dardens, and I don't think it works at all. Like, Lorna Silence, it did work. This one, it doesn't work at all. I I don't think anything really clicked in it. I give it two stars. Wow. Wow. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, I loved her character. I, I loved learning about her background and how she's sort of conflicted at, at her work because she's she doesn't know whether to leave the practice that she's at and start anew. And she's kind of engaging with these people that she finds out more than she ever thought she would know about. Um, and yeah, that's all story. But in the Dardenne's world, it's really kind of fascinating to see. So I don't know. I'm, I'm disappointed that you didn't like it. Yeah, me I think too. That was one of I the movies Terry, I wanted to watch a lot. <laughs> Terry needs to be the tiebreaker on this one, maybe. I always am, and I'm always in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I really appreciate the Dardenne Brothers movies, and I, I I'll keep watching their movies even though I didn't like this one. But I don't know. I just it was not uh it was not one of their finer efforts. See, I was a little hesitant going in because I was actually disappointed by Lorna's Silence. I, I guess I'll re I'll rephrase my statement. That's that's the one film of theirs that I've never quite quote unquote understood or got. Uh, or, uh, but uh, this one really worked. I think it was because of the performance by the main actress, though. Maybe even more so than the Dardenne's, because she, I thought, was spectacular in it. I agree with that, at least. Alright, moving on to my number four is a movie that you both said you didn't see, and that's Call Me By Your Name by Luca Guadagnino. Uh, it's a movie that moved me just, like, beyond words. Like, coming off a couple movies I kind of hated, which were I Am Love and A Bigger Splash. Uh, I had little faith in this project, especially starring Mr. Flop, Army Hammer, and Finn from Homeland. <laughs> Yet, 
it was really rewarding, really challenging, and stunningly gorgeous. I, it's about a teenager named Elio in 1983 Italy who falls for his father's American research assistant named Oliver. And it's a forbidden romance, but only slightly. And what ensues is the most just melancholic and romantic and charming, devastating romance on screen in quite some time. And Chalamet is a future star. He gives the best performance by any actor or actress in 2017. And it's, it's a coming-of-age tale, but it's also something deeper. There's a shot near the end of the movie where it's just an extended shot of Chalamet's face, and you could see everything you need to know just from, like, looking into his eyes. And it's a movie about young love, about finding yourself, and the inevitable heartbreak that you get. And uh, it's our, I, I compare it to it'd be like our, our generation's My Own Private Idaho, but it has, like, a visual appeal of the dreamers and the uncertainty of Carol, sort of. It's unbelievably European, and I'm surprised that Americans love it as much as they do, but it's a special film, and you will have trouble getting it out of your head. It's uh, definitely one of the best movies of the year. Call Me By Your Name is my number four. Yeah, uh, as we said earlier, it's a film that hasn't been released in, in my market yet. I have really high expectations for it. I am looking forward to seeing that one. I've heard a lot of great things about it, and and the recommendation from Todd makes me want to see it even more. So what's interesting about it also has Michael Stuhlbarg is in it, and he gives he has three movies this year that are all probably going to get nominated for Best Picture, he, and he better get nominated for one of them. I just don't think it should be this one. I think it should be nominated for um, The Shape of Water, but I think it would be this movie would be the one he gets nominated for. Yeah, um, I've heard some really. Uh, I've heard he gives a really good speech at the end of the film too, and. Um, I think the bottom line, though, is that Timothy Chalamet is the breakout star of 2017. He has to be with his roles in this and Lady Bird and Hostels, right? I mean, was there any actor more magnetic than him? In, or maybe, you know, Stolberg, but... Yeah, no, I mean, the, those movies... Oh, I mean, Stolberg was not the main character in any of those, at least. But Right. Yeah, Chalamet, for sure. Like, I think he should win Best Actor. There's no way... I, I just can't see... I mean, I, I get the career award thing, but Chalamet is just... Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, for a while you've been texting me saying, you know, it's Adrian Brody in 2002. So that that would be really awesome to see. I just hope he doesn't stutter in his uh, acceptance speech. Maybe, maybe Holly Berry can be up there and he can give her a kiss. Uh, number three on my list is a film I actually just saw this week and was completely blown away by, and that is the new Pixar film Coco. Uh, it proves once again that Pixar is brilliant in almost everything it does. Uh, Coco tells the story of a young boy named Miguel who lives in Mexico and he and his family are getting ready for the celebration of the Day of the Dead. Uh, families put up pictures of their ancestors, they tell stories about them, and they leave out some of their favorite things as they believe their ancestors will be visiting them throughout the night. Um, after a disagreement with his family about his love of music, young Miguel finds himself caught somewhere between life and death as he interacts with these ancestors that come to visit on this sacred day. Uh, the world of the dead is breathtaking. It kind of reminds me of the memory world in Inside Out. Um, and the adventure Miguel goes on um, helps him discover what is really important. Um, I feel like it's a perfect combination of like Inside Out and up in both its heart and its emotion. 
I loved every minute of it, and it is near impossible to leave the theater with a dry eye with the ending it has. Uh, number three on my list is Coco. Well, another movie I did not necessarily like. I have it ranked in my number 52 of the year. and uh, Heartless. I don't know. I mean, yeah, the, the, the last song... How could you be so heartless? Yeah. I don't know. Remember Me is a really, a really good song, and it is a really really touching and and that that brings it like up to the level that i have it at but other than that like i i don't think i could ever think of a movie where i liked that the main character was the least interesting character in the entire movie like there's nothing interesting about him or his character <laughs> arc i didn't buy it at all i i, I don't like the movie <laughs> oh come on how could you not like that movie by the way, Todd, when you say that, you know, Coco was your number 52 film of the year, you're, you're saying that off your head, right? Because you know every film 1 to 104 on your list. <laughs> yeah, I'm not looking at my list right now or anything. <laughs> did they, you know, when, when Coco won at the Golden Globes, did, didn't the director say that it took them six years to make? I mean, that's astonishing, you know? Uh, that, that deserves commending on its own. I will see it at some point. Well, and like I said, the the world of the dead that they that they create because part of it Miguel travels to where all his ancestors live every other day except for the Day of the Dead. Um, the detail in that world is outstanding, and I heard they had to create like it was like a thousand different levels of of depth in order to create the world that it has and like to get some of those shots that they create in there it's just remarkable what they were able to do so not only is i think it is it a great story but it also is uh amazing in how it shows what um pixar can do in this animation you know where um, you heard really that is because they told you before the movie there's that whole exactly. opening thing it's like yeah <laughs> It's like, we're worried that you're not going to like the movie, so we're going to tell you how amazing it is before you watch it. Like, <laughs> I hated that. I mean, the movie, I, I, I don't hate the movie. Like, I, it's my top-ranked two-and-a-half-star movie, but, like, I don't know. I, it, was, it was really gorgeous. I just don't... I didn't, I didn't buy the kids... The, I didn't buy the kids' character arc. I didn't... <laughs> it is great animation, great visuals, but I, I don't... Not top ten. Just a hater. That's like five straight mm -hmm. movies that are 50 or below that you guys named. That's, this is going downhill quick. <laughs> Give me another one, Zach. Well, I, I, think, I, think, it just, I think it just shows that, that, that we know what we're talking about, and you have no idea. I do think it's cool that there was a big New York Times article about the director of Coco who said that um, he consulted with a lot of um, Mexican individuals instead of just having ideas from his own kind of white Caucasian head about what Day of the Dead meant. So it was cool that it wasn't just a cultural appropriation. And as a result, I don't think there's been a lot of backlash to the movie. So I like seeing that. No, if, if anything, it's, it's been praised for the fact that it's uh, bringing diversity into kind of the, the Disney animated universe Absolutely. and showing a whole new side and uh, telling a story that normally wouldn't be told. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I will see it definitely at some point, um, looking really forward to it. Let's move on to number three on my list, since Todd is kind of desperate to get off that. Um, number three on my list is uh, another uh, foreign language film. Uh, this time it's uh, a film that uh, is... Uh, coming from France, and the film is called France, and 
it is directed by Francois Ozon, and Francois Ozon has had sort of a uh, wild career. Some of his films have been really awesome. Like, Sweet. hold on a second, hold on a second. So it is a film from France, named France, directed by Francois. Oh yes, uh, it is. Okay, I just want uh, I just want to double check that. Okay, I, I never <laughs> thought about it that way, but um, now that you mention it, that's 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 some kind of uh, feat in itself, I suppose. Um, <laughs> But, now uh, I know why you like it. Yeah, well, yeah. And it's actually a good movie, too, um, beyond that. All right, so the film takes place in the aftermath of World War I, and the first part of the film is actually set in Germany. And it t tells the story of this young woman named Anna, and uh, her fiancé, whose name is Franz, and that's the title of the film, uh, has died in the battlefield, and she actually is living with her, fiance, her dead fiancé's parents. And one day, a mysterious young Frenchman comes and visits them, and uh, he has a secret that relates to her dead fiancé, France. I won't say what it is, but uh, basically this secret um, really complicates their relationship, which is already fraught with complications because he is a Frenchman coming into a defeated Germany. So there's a lot of kind of cultural and social hostility uh, that you see in the film. Um, the film is shot in black and white, and it looks spectacular. And what's also cool about the visuals about it is that there are some scenes in the film that Ozan ch chose to sh uh, actually shoot in color, but it's a real desaturated color. It almost looks like a home movie. And um, the film seems to be building up to a romantic relationship between these two characters. Uh, and, you know, watching the film, it, you really start getting into the mindset of what these people had to live through in the aftermath of World War I. I, I can't think of that many films that are really able to transport you back to such a foreign time and place, because you don't see a lot of films about the aftermath of World War I. Um, especially European films for American audiences, or, or what, what American audiences would perceive of them. So it's really cool that the director is able to have that much emotional resonance. Um, I will say, this film is number three on my list. It's sort of a curious choice at number three because I don't like the last third of the film. I think it goes in a direction that becomes kind of protracted and overlong. But at the one minute, at the one hour and fifteen minute mark, watching Franz, it was the best film of the year, and uh, I wish the director had been able to end it and resolve the the story in a more concise manner. Um, but we can't have what we want, and we can't rate the film for what it's not. I will say though, the first hour and fifteen minutes of Franz is sublime filmmaking. The rest of it, um, you know, it's proficient. Um, I just would have liked to seen it go different places. It's uh, really full of spectacular performances, and the cinematography is great. It's a film that got cruelly um, unnoticed by audiences in the United States. Ozan's a powerful filmmaker. Franz by Francois Ozan, taking place in France. Whatever you want to say about it, it's my number three film of 2017. I have not seen this one, but it's one that I've seen on things, and I've been wanting to watch it. I'm surprised Terry hasn't come across it being uh, the director of his number one of 2003, Swimming Pool. <laughs> oh, hey, that's right. Well, he's really he's an uneven director. It, 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 well, uneven maybe in a good way, because his films really almost never resemble uh, each other. Like, he made this other film that's on Netflix now called In This House that is nothing like this film at all. Um, so he's very robust in his approach, but uh, this film is just a beautiful film to watch, and it tells a classical story. It's actually a remake of a film from the 30s called um, Broken Lullaby, which was made by Ernst Lubitsch. Um, and this is just a... It takes you back to 1919 in a way that most historical films are unable to do because of how strong the emotional connections are with these characters and the, the performances, too. Just fabulous work all around. 
I will check that one out. Uh, my number three is a movie that was on my top five most anticipated movies list for 2016, but it got delayed until a few months ago it came out, and that is Una, directed by Benedict Andrews. Uh, it, uh, I'm happy to say, after when it was my anticipate, one of my most anticipated movies, it did not disappoint. It checks every box for being a Todd movie. It's a directorial debut, it's based on a play, and it's got Rooney Mara. It's a Todd movie. Uh, yes. It's a story of At a man. At least you admit that that is a, that is a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was well aware of that watching it. <laughs> um, it's a story of a man played by Ben Mendelsohn in maybe his best performance who had an affair with his 13-year-old neighbor and then disappeared. And then 15 years later, she uh, tracks him down in a very history of violence type way and... Uh, and that she's now a grown ro- woman, and she finds him at his work. And uh, this is about their interaction, her asking him like why he abandoned her, essentially, because she thought they were in love. And uh, while while watching it, you could ask like, is it like tape, the Richard Linklater masterpiece, where she's just confronting him and asking him questions and messing with his head, or is it like Hard Candy, where she's out to expose him and seek vengeance? And motives are really unclear, you don't really know, and it's, it's, but it's the atmosphere, and it's the dialogue, and everything that, that makes the movie's experience uh, really worth watching. Mara is magnificent, Riz Ahmed is in it, playing uh, his co-worker, and it was, yeah, it was a movie that I'm happy to say was not a disappointment in 2017, and that is a big thing. So, Una, my number three. Una, not Uma, to be clear. No. If it had Uma, that'd be like your movie, France from France. France from France, <laughs> Uma and Uma. <laughs> well, Todd, right. you, you really sold me. That yeah. film sounds really outstanding. I mean, the comparisons that... It, it sounded a little bit like Hard Candy, the way you're describing it. Um, it, it sounds really awesome. I, I will definitely check that out. Good. Rooney Mara, Rooney Mara made another film this year called A Ghost Story. Did you ever get a, you got around to seeing that, right? Yeah, yeah. we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Of course. that was. So it's been sort of an interesting year for her because she's done some of these sort of independent movies, but um, she's still a great actress, and I know she's one of your faves. That's for sure. Yeah, she she seems to always have like two or three movies to come out, and they're always like I I I hardly ever dislike a movie that she's in. She really has good choices. All right, let's uh, let's move on. Getting into the top two now. Uh, number two on my list is another film that we talked about on an earlier podcast, or I talked about on an earlier podcast, and that is Detroit. Uh, based on the real-life events of the 1967 Detroit riots, Catherine Bigelow brilliantly tells the story of a group of rogue police officers that torture a group of innocent black hotel residents. Um, it is gritty and thrilling as we revisit history in a time when stories like this should be revisited. Uh, Will Poulter gives a tremendous and sadly forgotten performance. This is the most the uh, most overlooked supporting performance of the year. Um, as the lead cop that has these racist t- tendencies that lead to dire consequences for many involved. It feels like documentary footage because all of the acting is so brilliant from uh, from both sides, from those that are representing the cops, from those that are representing those in the hotel. It is, um, it is thrilling. It has you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Um, I loved it. Detroit, my number two. 
So this is another movie I'm not crazy about. Uh, I have it ranked one spot above Coco, actually, but I give it three stars. My lowest ranked three star movie. I, don't, I think it. I think it gets. I, I do not like the court scenes necessarily. I think John Krasinski is really miscast, but I agree that Will Poulter is amazing. And I, but the one thing I didn't like about the movie is it. It like has very little scenes. There's very few amount of scenes that actually make you understand the victims. Like all all the scenes are making you understand the cops, but like you don't like obviously they're like mon like they're monsters, but you you don't really get anything to get into the head of the victims, which really was sort of a weird dichotomy that I didn't really get. And then the 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 court scenes I just think were tacked on. But yeah, overall it was a it was an interesting movie to watch, and I, it was. Somewhat of a short two and a half hours, but I, I'm I'm not crazy about it. I I think, I think there's a reason why it's being overlooked. Yeah, it was an honorable mention for me. It was my number twelve film of the year. Um, Todd Todd's criticisms are interesting because I don't disagree with them. I do feel that the courtroom scenes are tacky, and I do feel like the not maybe not tacky, but but tacked on as you said. And uh, I do feel that sometimes the police get sort of the requisite. Um, treatment in terms of the perspective of the of the events that you see in the film, but um, I love the opening 20-25 minutes. I love that you know Bigelow paints this wide canvas of this time period in this uh, city, and we don't really know where the story is going to go. And she's chosen an event that unfortunately has not received a lot of publicity because it was a pretty heinous tragedy that happened. So um, I don't know, maybe outside of Detroit, it certainly needs no more uh, national and historical recognition. Um, I think it's really powerful uh, work by one of the best directors working today. So I would side more Ontario on this one. I think it's really strong. But I hear Todd's uh, criticisms, which are valid. Well, and, and the courtroom scenes are kind of tacked on at the end, but I don't think that's necessarily a problem. It feels more like an epilogue to the to the telling of the story. Um, and it I think it's meant to kind of... You have to tell that part of the story, but that's not why you're telling the story necessarily. And well, well in some ways it is, but um, which is why you have to say it. But it it doesn't need to be something where okay, we just had this whole thing. Now let's let's make a few good men out of these courtroom scenes. Well, I mean, it, it's it's real. It serves its purpose. The function of the courtroom scenes is to show the continuing injustice that happens. That it didn't just end that night. That the whole you know, justice system was rigged in favor of these officers. So it is a really important note to show. It shouldn't just be a coda mm -hmm. or footnote at the end. I get that. Uh, I just wish that, I mean, maybe it was the casting of John Krasinski. Maybe it was the kind of, you know, start, start, difference. Um, this melodrama of the courtroom scene starkly different from the kind of gritty realism of the scenes in the hotel. Maybe it's too much of a contrast. I don't know. I had no problem with them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's a it's a really strong film, and I I think it's it's good. It's nice to see on at least one of our top ten lists. Um, moving on to my number two of the year is uh, another film from outside the United States. This is a film from Australia, made by a first time director named Ben Young, and the film is entitled Hounds of Love. Um, sort of an odd title, uh, but it tells the story of an, the abduction of a teenage girl in 1980s uh, Perth, Australia. And um, so, you know, when you start watching the film, you sort of think, well, okay, we're, we're, head, we're headed in familiar territory. This looks like sort of a standard torture porn type thriller. We're seeing this teenage victim and this kind of odd, crazy husband and wife couple pick her up on the street and kind of take her in. And then suddenly she's locked up and being tortured. Um, and then the movie kind of 
goes in a different direction. It starts becoming a lot more psychological. It starts becoming about how this girl is going to plan her escape from this house. It starts becoming about who this guy is and he, how he's presenting this veneer of power when really that there are things that are um, inside him that are, you know, uh, different than what you'd expect. And then this woman, this wife that he has, who somehow is his accomplice in this kind of sexual abduction. Um, why does she go along with it? Is she a victim too? Um, so the film, again, starts out with this kind of premise that we've seen before, then goes in this kind of psychologically warped territory that we're not used to, and it's, it's thrilling. You don't know what's going to happen along the way. Um, it's violent, but not excessively so. And uh, it tells a really gripping story, and the way that um, this young girl tries to plot out her escape is really unique and intriguing, and it's full of great performances. Um, Emma Booth, uh, and uh, as, as this woman, this wife character, who actually sort of becomes the focal point of the film as it goes along, um, is fantastic. Uh, she's actually my best actress winner for this year uh, at, at this point. Uh, she gives a really multi-layered performance that's, uh, that's a difficult one to give. And uh, Ashley Cummings and Stephen Curry, not the basketball player, but the Australian actor, um, also is fantastic. So it's a definitely a film worth checking out. It's not for the faint of stomach, but uh, it's, it will be, it's worth your time. And Ben Young uh, is a name to watch out for. Hounds of Love, my number two film of the year. Yeah, I've not seen this movie, but I know you've been telling me to watch it for quite a while, so I will oh, get it, on that it, soon. Definitely qualifies as a Todd film, even though Rooney Mara is not in it, and it's nothing remotely like a history of violence. But that's okay still qualifies <laughs> apparently the being a Todd movie has a lot of different meanings I remember you said Chloe was like as Todd a movie as there was and that I don't I know. think you just need a general tone of darkness and sinister <laughs> and people doing really malicious violent things okay <laughs> Terry have you seen this uh no I, I <laughs> <Okay>. have not <laughs> no. making sure yeah well, a movie that you have seen is my number two, and it's good to know we agree on something. It was mentioned earlier on your list, and that is Get Out by Jordan Peele. And like you were saying before, there's no movie that surprised more than this movie in 2017. Uh, he turned a sketch comic, made a movie, and turned a, it into a social commentary horror comedy as a directorial debut, and it's amazing. Daniel Kaluuya is awesome as Chris. Uh... And uh, Allison Williams, also great in her uh, part as his girlfriend. And my best supporting actor winner of the year so far still is Lil Rel Howery, who Chris uh, constantly is talking to on the phone, trying to find somebody sane who he can relate to. And uh, Lakeith Stanfield is also in it, who is also in my best actor list for Crown Heights, which is a really good movie, starring uh, Namdi Asamoah also. Definitely recommend that movie as well. But he's also in this movie. He seems to be in everything right now. Uh, I don't know. Peel is an interesting guy, and he was able to make this movie his own. And the the laughs are hardly like out loud laughs, but it uh, it definitely is funny. And it but it also is definitely a horror movie, and it's made scarier when you think about the parallels to society. And it was an experience that I'll never forget watching the theater, and I've watched. A few times since on cable, it's Peel is a natural, and it is a, a just a great, great movie. My number two is Get Out. So I think Get Out is going to be a real beneficiary of the voting system that we have currently at the Oscars for Best Picture because 
I think it's a film that pretty much universally everyone can agree on is a really strong film. Even though it's about really touchy, controversial issues, potentially, it's not really driven by those issues in such a way to drive wedges in the audience. I think white and black audiences uh, really appreciate the film and, and acknowledge its, its points and... Um, I think the voting system is going to help it because even if it doesn't get some first place votes, it will almost certainly be in the top four. You got to think, right? So that's the same same with Lady Bird too. But yeah, I mean, we'll get out. I like on Metacritic, it, it uh, compiles all the critic lists, and that actually overall is weighted number one because it's got almost as many number ones as anything else, and it's also pretty much everybody's number two or three if it's not number one. So I, yeah, you know. Even though Lady Bird ranked higher on my list, I think I would almost rather see Get Out win Best Picture just because of how unorthodox a film it is to be a Best Picture. It would be amazing to see. Yeah, it would pretty much shatter any like genre bias that the Academy could ever claim from... <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, because Get Out almost, you could say, doesn't have a genre. I mean, it's, it, it, it's kind of a film all on its own. And I would think it, I would think it's like it's got to be one of the first, it, it, the last time a best picture was this kind of po popular, in, with the mass consensus might have been Titanic. I can't think of another movie that played as well with not just audiences with high critical tastes, but like just everyday audiences. I mean, everyone is uh, powerfully moved by this film, regardless of if you're a film fan or you know who Jordan Peele is, or you know, it, uh, it's just a great experience. And then we get All to the right. number one films. Number one. Last but certainly not least, number one on my list is going to be one Zach is not going to be too happy about. I, number I'd one on my we list is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Martin McDonough's masterpiece about a woman trying to find justice for her daughter is hilarious, inspiring, heartbreaking, and entertaining from start to finish. Uh, McDonough has established himself as like an Irish version of the Coens, even stealing their favorite lead in Frances McDormand, who gives her best performance since Fargo and will be bringing home her second Oscar for this film. Uh, Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson are brilliant as the inept yet driven cops that react to getting called out in very different ways. Don't listen to Zach. This film needs to be seen by all, and like we said, might be the favorite for Best Picture right now. Number one, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Well, I think audiences can listen to our podcast for a more in-depth discussion of the film and maybe why I voice some objections to it. I would agree with you that it's worth seeing, and I would also second your opinion that Frances McDormand is great in it, and I wish the movie had been about her and not... Um, not trying to show the redemption of corrupt racist cops um, and some who are very uh, lengthy in their letters, their, their suicide notes. Oh wait, I shouldn't spoil that. Um, but uh, it's your number one film of the year. Um, maybe we'll hold off on Todd's thoughts about the film. Let, let me tell you my number one film of the year, which is certainly not uh, the Three Billboards. It is The Florida Project, the follow-up feature um, by uh, Sean Baker to his 2015 film Tangerine. Um, Sean Baker is a really cool director to, to watch for. Um, again, I, I, at least on my list, I'm sensing a lot of younger directors, so it's really cool to see that. Uh, the film tells the story of a young girl named Mooney 
and she, this is this takes place over the course of one summer, and she lives in a hotel on the outskirts of Disney World, and uh, kind of like Lady Bird, it's sort of a day in the life type film. You don't see a lot of really uh, melodramatic story involved, but you do see characters emerge, and some of these characters are. Bobby, the local, or the, the hotel manager, who's played by Willem Dafoe in a performance that's getting some Oscar attention, and Mooney's mother, um, Haley, played by Britta, uh, excuse me, Bria Vinay, um, in a performance that I think uh, is getting cruelly overlooked and is one of the best of the year. Um, it's hard to describe the film. It's it's very different uh, visually. It's really unique. Um, the characters. It's told from the perspective of the little girl, and yet it's very much also about the adult characters that surround her. Uh, you know, when I go to movies, I like for movies to pick me up and put me in their hands and shake me and throttle me and slap me and destroy me emotionally. And this was the only movie that really remotely came close to doing that in 2017. I was moved. Uh, I, I thought a lot about the movie after having seen it. I still haven't gotten over the experience of it. I can't imagine anyone watching the last scene of that movie and not having a visceral emotional reaction to it. Um, it's a movie that haunts me, and uh, Sean Breaker is a genius. This is a film that uh, should be nominated for Best Picture. Probably won't be because it's a little too offbeat and esoteric for the Academy, but um, is really worth checking out. Yeah, that is a movie that I... I'm sad to say I still have not seen because I did not get a chance when it had its like one week run around me, but I am dying to see it. I will see it as soon as I can. Okay, well moving on to my number one, which is also Terrence's number one. It's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And uh, the dark comedy by the new master of the genre, Martin McDonough. Uh, the movie has moments of brutality, but it also has these, like, outrageous, almost misplaced punchlines which make the movie seem that much more real. And, uh, it's brilliant, it's relevant, it's an example of how good a dark comedy crime film can be taking its place with Fargo in that regard. As it draws to its conclusion, you're pleading for resolution, but that's not really how it works in the real world most of the time, so it might not work that way in this movie either. The people who crit critique it for the glorification of the racist cops are completely fishing without a net. I don't understand that. Uh, that's not what the movie's about. It criticizes the cops and you aren't supposed to like them. It's touching material, but it's handled with class and empathetic mastery by McDonough. It is definitely the best movie I saw in 2017. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see what... Ha I, 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 wa I want us to, like, re-examine these lists in five years because, you know, I'm not going to remember three billboards in five years. I actually barely remember it having seen it a month ago, and um, I think The Florida Project will age much better. I think it's a more aesthetically beautiful film, and the performances are richer, due to, in large part, part to the fact that they're done by non-professionals. Um, but the chances of the three billboards winning Best Picture, um, I think you have to consider it the front-runner right now, even in spite of the things that we've mentioned with Lady Bird and Get Out, in spite of the fact that it may divide some viewers. But its wins at the Golden Globes were certainly big, and I think it has devotees like like both of you. It just has some really strong followers, and uh, it's certainly going to be a contender this year. I'm just glad that one film on my list isn't in, like, the 60s or 70s in Todd's <laughs> list. So, 
Hey, my, I, I like at least we one, can agree on something. My one and two are both on your list, but that's true. That's true. I don't know. I, I think Three Billboards is a lot like where No Country for Old Men was. Like that that movie similarly was really popular with a lot of critics and started to take home the the most important awards. But then the Golden Globes didn't even give that best picture, but it did to Three Billboards, which I think it's also more popular because it has so many. Uh, outstanding acting performances that are getting nominated too. It's it's going to pretty much check all the boxes, so it, it has a really good chance at at winning as long as people don't end up hating it by the time the awards happen, like they did with La La Land last year. It will be remembered in the same category as The Social Network and Birdman, movies that maybe struck a chord for one year but really don't have much of a legacy. I don't know. I I, I I'm you don't not, think The Social I'm, Network has the, a legacy. <laughs> I'm, I meant, well, yeah, no, the social network should have won in 2010. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying the King's Speech and, and uh, uh, the Birdman were just films that were mistakes by the Academy, and I think oh. they had really sh- short shelf So you meant social lives. network and boyhood. I see what you mean. Okay. Those, well, those God. were the films that should have won. Is, right. And what I'm saying is the Three Billboards, I think, is striking a nerve right now, but I don't think we'll have a shelf life. Obviously, I don't have a very sympathetic audience here, but I guess I need to go back and re-examine it. I don't know. Well, I will I'm say not Francis even sure Victoria's Lady Bird really will, will be remembered that long either though like but get out will which is why get out yeah. should win should best win. picture maybe i should look back at my list and flip flop ladybird and get out i don't know all right well uh we've reached the end of our list so let's um uh, let's uh review 10 to 1 and uh and then go from there so for me number 10 the big sick number nine get out number eight baby driver number seven dunkirk number six star wars the last jedi number five split Number three, uh, number four, Logan. Number three, Coco. Number two, Detroit. And number one, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. My list is number ten, I am Jane Doe. Number nine is Get Out. Number eight is Mother. Number seven is My Happy Family. Number six is Mudbound. Number five is Ladybird. Number four is The Unknown Girl. Number three is France. Number two is Hounds of Love. And the number one film, of tw- the true number one film of 2017 is The Florida Project. And it's not fair to put it on this list quite yet because Terry and Todd have not seen it. But when they do, it will be their number one film. All right. My number 10 is Molly's Game. Number nine, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected. Number eight, Baby Driver. Number seven, The Incredible Jessica James. Not a uh, superhero movie. Uh, my number six, My Life as a Zucchini. Number five, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Number four, Call Me By Your Name. Number three, Una. Number two, Get Out. And number one, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So ter- Okay, so now let, let me say here, all right, so you guys were arguing over whether Get Out should count as one or two since it was on both of your lists, and the response is, it don't matter because there are five movies that were on your lists that I have seen. Uh, the Last Jedi, Baby Driver, Get Out, Mother, and Three Billboards. So y'all are crazy. That's what I have to say. Okay. You said there were only going to be two movies on either of your lists that I'd seen. When you knew on your list there were at least two. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is, Terry, you actually had a number of films that were on that ended up on both of our lists. Not that you had just merely seen them, but they appeared. Like Three Billboards, Star Wars, Baby Driver, and Get Out. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was a decent amount of crossover, which doesn't happen very often. So, with our with our almost sideways team, 
Uh, we also have Adam. Adam could uh, wanted to be a part of this podcast, uh, but uh, couldn't make it. However, you can find his top ten list on his YouTube channel, and it'll be up on almostsideways.com as well. Um, we we've been we've been uh, talking long long enough here, so let's uh, let's wrap this up with our quote of the day. Strawberries, not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. All right, so for our quote of the day uh, to wrap up our podcast today, uh, we each selected a quote uh, from a movie um, from 2017. Um, maybe one of our favorite quotes uh, from the year. Uh, I'll go ahead and start out. Uh, so my quote uh, comes from one of the movies that appeared on my top 10, and that is Baby Driver. And I picked a quote that kind of sums up the heart of the movie. Um, it's, uh, like I said, it was it's an action flick, but it also has a, a great love story and some great heart behind it, too. And this quote comes from uh, Baby's love interest, Deborah. And uh, she says, Sometimes all I want is to head west on 20 in a car I can't afford with a plan I don't have, just me, my music, and the road. And I think it, it really just kind of sums up the, uh, the romantic side of uh, such an awesome movie that balances uh, the, the harsh action and the, the love story so well. Sort of like a Penny Lane quote almost. It kind of does feel like that, doesn't it? <laughs> if you ever feel lonely, right, just go it... to the record store and visit your friends. Her character isn't yes. too far, far removed from Penny Lane. That's <laughs> true. They're it really relatives. is true. In the cinematic universe. Um, my quote comes from Get Out, which was the only film that appeared on all three of our lists, so that should say something. Um, this is a quote uh, said by Rod, uh, who is uh, the, Chris's friend. Um, I'm not going to set up the quote too much, except uh, I, I do. It, it, you might want to cover your ears a little bit. Uh, the quote is I'm T.S. Mother. Huh. We handle. Huh. That's what we do. Consider this situation huh. handled. And from here on out, every quote I give at the end of this podcast will contain vulgarity. Peace out. Perfect. All right. Yes. Is there anything else you can say? Todd. My, Todd, top that. Mine will be uh, <laughs> the perfect end to this. And this is a quote from Lucky by uh, the late, great Harry Dean Stanton. And the quote is, The only thing worse than awkward silence, small talk. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Well, thanks again so much uh, for listening. Uh, hopefully uh, we gave you some ideas for some movies to go see. If you haven't seen some of the ones that are on our top ten list, uh, definitely check them out. Uh, we'll catch you in a couple weeks. Um, until then, enjoy the movies, and we'll catch you then. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.